0: Bite of Courage is about ordinary people aspiring to live their best life by overcoming vulnerability and fear. It's about finding our courage and sharing our stories so we can be who we're truly meant to be and discovering in the process that we're a lot more similar than we are dissimilar. To listen, go to biteofcourage.com or your favorite podcast app. everyone. Welcome back to Bite of Courage. My guest today is Dr. Charles Veer, but I call him Uncle Bud, married to his wife Gloria for the last 68 years, but is the patriarch of my very large extended family, which include he and his wife Gloria and their 12 children, 44 grandchildren, 28 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild with three more on the way. 93 years young, Bud is a retired medical doctor, a Navy veteran, an activist, a mentor and a champion of education through the arts, and an author who, along with Gloria, wrote their memoir called Love, Laughter, and Dreams. Modest about his many lifetime achievements, he's here today to talk about the one achievement that would change the course of he and his family's life forever. Hi, Uncle Bud. Welcome. Hello, Mo. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing wonderful.
0: Great. Well, thank you for being here. So before we get started, I'd like to ask you the first question that I ask all of my guests, and that is, what is your definition of courage?
1: Well, my simple definition of courage, Mo, would be to attempt something where failure is a possibility. This could be a heroic rescue, uh, a, a career pursuit, and academic journey, and athletic achievement, or any number of other courageous adventures. Uh, When I asked Gloria for her opinion, she suggested that courageous ventures also require a belief or faith that you can achieve them, and I would agree. I would,
0: too. Thank you. So, let's get right into this. By the time you were 35, you had been married for how many years?
1: Well, we, we married when I was uh, 21. So we've been married for, what, 13 years, 14 years?
0: And you had eight kids and a well-established career. And in the middle of all of that, you somehow found the courage to make a life-changing decision. Can you tell me, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh Ever since I was a child, my dream was to be a medical doctor, and I pursued that in my undergraduate work. I graduated with a degree, an undergraduate degree in pre-med, but I was an average student. I was not an A student, and because this was right after the Second World War, there was a big influx of people wanting to take advantage of the GI Bill. So I made the decision that uh, there was no way that a medical school would accept me with my average grades, so I didn't even apply. But uh, I then pursued uh, social work, uh, got a master's in social work, and uh, worked in the inner city of Chicago for three years, and then went into teaching for seven years, uh, science and math, to middle school. But I never could quite shape my dream of being a doctor. And so at the age of 34, with eight children at the time, I uh, turned to my wife and I said, I'd like to see if I can get into medical school.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that Glow probably fell out of her chair.
1: Yes, yes. She said, how are we going to feed the kids? I said, well, I don't know that part of it, but uh, I hate to die with my dream uh, mm. still in me. So... Once she determined that I was serious, then it was Katie bar the door, and she was my cheerleader. Well, without without her, it never would have happened. Uh, yeah. I mean, how many women would agree to such a crazy, crazy idea?
0: <laughs> Not many that I know. <laughs> yeah. What I would like to know is how you got interested in medicine. How did that sort of become the dream for you?
1: Well, this is kind of a cliche, I suppose, but. Uh, my my thought in regard to medicine was that it, it was a, a way to help people, and that's kind of a simplistic idea.
0: Was there anything that happened during childhood or young adulthood that sort of sparked that in you? No,
1: not really. No, I, I don't recall anything that uh, yeah. in the family that uh, would have stimulated that, and we, we had no doctors in the family.
0: You had... Obviously been carrying this dream inside of you for a long time. But like many of us who get caught up in making a living and caring for our families, we get stuck. And instead of following our dreams, we follow our expectations and the expectations that other people have for us too. And we give up on our dreams. We we buy a new sports car or we hike the Appalachian Trail. (laughs) You know, it feels too late for us though, and too big and too risky, and it makes us feel vulnerable. But like you said, when you define courage, it requires faith as well as our ability to attempt something where failure is a possibility. And you were in your mid-30s with a growing family of eight. You had a lot of mouths to feed. That's quite a lot at stake. So can you help us to understand how you found the courage to actually make the decision to apply to med school and by decision, I mean the actionable steps that you took in this process to make that final decision, because I, I think if we can start to understand the steps of someone's process better, we can, you know, regardless of age, start to apply those same principles to our own lives, to fulfilling our own dreams by making a plan that includes action. Can you kind of take me back to the steps that led you to actually making that decision and, and then telling Gloria about it?
1: Uh, Sure. Well, the first the first step was to get Gloria's approval without her approval and support. It would not have happened. So that was that was the very first step. And once she was on board, uh, Gloria is an optimist. She's a visionary. Uh, I tend to be a a more more realist. (laughs) Show me the money. But she she focuses on the goal rather than on the journey. I tend to focus on the journey. So I had to have her support. And once I got her support, then she was thinking of all kinds of ways that we could make this happen. The The second uh, challenge, the second hurdle to get over was to be accepted. How in the world would I find a, a medical school that would accept this crazy 34-year-old with eight children and average grades? So we got out the, the directory and we uh, looked at all the schools, all the medical schools, and we, we decided to send a preliminary letter. Actual applications cost money. Right. Uh, so we sent a letter out to 25 medical schools and p- pointed out my disqualifying features, my average grades, my large family, my age. And of course, some of them said, and then my question to them was, would you even look at my application? And some of them, of course, said, uh, keep teaching. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Don't give <laughs> up your day for, job. Forget it. You're you're, you're crazy. Uh, but some offered encouragement. And Mo, I, I felt that if I could get to the interview stage, I could sell myself. But I had to get to the interview. So we ended up narrowing it down to six schools. And we played every angle we could. One school was Tennessee, which admitted three classes a year, so they had far more openings. Another was uh, the University of Indiana, where I'd gotten my master's degree in social work, and I thought that might play a part. Then we touched the Catholic schools because our large family should certainly indicate that we were good Catholics. (laughs) And so uh, we applied to Creighton, which is a good Jesuit school, Loyola of Chicago, and Georgetown. Those were our Catholic outreaches. Uh, And then Missouri was a relatively new four-year medical school. So I thought maybe they wouldn't have quite as many applications. So we applied to Missouri in addition to the fact that Gloria had gone to school at Stevens College, which is located in the same town as Missouri Medical School. And so that was kind of a, an intriguing possibility. And uh, surprisingly, out of the six applications I sent, I had one outright refusal from Indiana. I never heard from Loyal at Chicago. But the others all invited me for interviews, and uh, we decided that Georgetown was far too expensive in the East, and Tennessee required me to take another class in chemistry, which I did not want to do, and for some reason, which I have never understood, Creighton accepted me outright. No interview, nothing. They just sent me an acceptance. Uh, To this day, I do not know unless it was a Catholic connection. And then Missouri, and they were just admitting six students in a class of 85 from out of state. They had never had out of state students before. And so that year they were going to accept six out of state students, uh, but they weren't going to interview them until later. Well, I had this acceptance from Creighton, which I didn't want to lose. But we really wanted to go to Missouri. So, anyway, I was able to get an early interview. And, and it was, Mo, it was one of those situations where we connected with the dean of admissions. He was a young man uh, who I think was intrigued by the challenge that we were taking on. And they asked Gloria to sit in on my interview. And we thought, well, he probably did that with all the. Married applicants that wasn't true. she was the only one they did that with, and to this day, and I don't say this facetiously to this day, I believe they were so impressed with Gloria that they felt I couldn't be that bad oh. so i think i I think I came in on her on her, her her shoestrings yeah uh,
0: what what a tribute to her and her courage and her belief in you
1: oh no, it was a It was a pleasant surprise. Gloria even had a letter of recommendation written by the woman who was the dean of students at Stevens College when she was there. We had kept in touch with her through Christmas cards. Uh, Gloria had developed quite a friendship with her. Grace Curtis was her name, an elegant woman. And so Gloria wrote to her and asked her to write a letter of recommendation for her that she could handle this to the admissions committee. So they had that too. And uh, I'm sure that probably played a part.
0: Yeah. One of the things I love about what you said too, and I've I've talked most recently with my last guest about this, about embracing your vulnerabilities and accepting your deficiencies. Mm -hmm. But when I asked you about the steps, how you sort of worked your way into finding the courage to do this, you you started by embracing the vulnerability part and working yourself backwards like, okay, this is this is what I've got to work with. I can't change what I don't have, but I can accept the deficiencies and the vulnerabilities and I can embrace them and then present them, the authentic mm-hmm. part of who you are. And I think that's a fantastic way to build up that skill set of courage. And it also reminds me of a story about just the power of connection through other people and in a similar a situation when I was graduating high school and I had traveled out west to go to school, but I had to pay for it. I couldn't afford it, and I couldn't find a job at the time, so I came back to Chicago. The head of the school had gotten wind of the fact that I wasn't going to go to college, and he kept calling me, and I was scared to return his call because I thought he was going to rescind. <laughs> my, I thought he was going to rescind my diploma and tell me <laughs> I'd, I'd be retroactively denied to my, <laughs> high school. So anyway. It was because my headmaster called up a a guy at Johns Hopkins who he played lacrosse with when he was an undergraduate there, who was now the Dean of Admissions at Notre Dame and in Baltimore, the small women's college there. Uh And based on that one phone call, they accepted me and Dr. Mahoney is his name, the Dean of Admissions. He gave me a work-study job. And when I got there, sight unseen... I got two jobs that weekend and I walked into the oh my gosh. admissions office based on this one recommendation and walked into the office and Dr. Mahoney gave me a job that Monday morning and he gave me five hundred dollars cash to Oh my gosh. To pay for my books and anything I needed and he said, Don't worry about paying me back and of course I had three jobs at that point and by the end of the semester I, I paid him back in full and that's the only reason I went to
1: college. Wow, what a story.
0: Oh. And I just share that because when I think about what Gloria did and, and the connection through her friend at Stevens and just the outreach, again, we're all connected through other people. And oh, yeah. it's amazing how people can help when you make yourself vulnerable and embrace your <laughs> vulnerability. So. Well,
1: it's true. It's amazing what you can accomplish if, you, if you're willing to stretch yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if you are fortunate and lucky enough to have people like Gloria who right. support you.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Speaking of which, did you talk to your parents or your brothers or anybody else about this?
1: That, that's interesting that you, you asked that, Mo. We stumbled onto a uh, a very important factor in pursuing dreams, and uh, in pursuing particularly dreams that seem... A bit out of, uh, out of the ordinary and a bit impossible, maybe. We stumbled on the fact that you don't share your dreams with people who might produce negative feedback.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You avoid negative feedback. So we told nobody that we were applying to medical school. Nobody in the family, and particularly not our parents, not our friends, until I had accept- received an acceptance. And then we we told it, and we were reminded of how wise that was. Gloria's mother's reaction was, well, Gloria, why don't you stay here in Wheaton with the kids and see if Bud makes it? Mm. (laughs) She had no confidence that I would make it. Uh, Gloria, of course, said, "Uh, you're crazy. I'm going with him. Uh, and, And my father's response was, well, you can't get accepted. I said, I've already been accepted. He said, well, well, I can't afford to put, pay your, for your medical school. He said, I didn't ask you to, Dad. But it was affirmation of the fact that uh, you don't seek negative input, so you avoid negative input. And, that, that, and some of our friends said the same thing. Now, once I was in medical school, it was interesting how attitudes changed then we became kind of the heroes. Oh, geez, yeah, yeah. gee, yeah, we're, we're, we've always been supportive of you, which was not true. <laughs> and the, the the greatest compliment I received, I think, ever from my father. Uh, my father was not one to give uh, compliments uh, very freely. And I, at our medical medical school graduation, we had a separate graduation. And I asked the president of the class, I said, I, I'd like to make some comments. I was by far the oldest in the class, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and the class had decided not to have a student speaker. But I said, I, I need to make some comments. And I never worked harder on a presentation in my life than I <laughs> worked on that. And so I made it was brief, but uh, tried to make it uh, funny and, uh, and meaningful and whatever. Sure. Uh, and... Uh, Uh, So I got up and delivered, and my family didn't know it either. Uh, Even Gloria didn't know I was going to do that. And uh, when I came back to my seat, uh, my father says, "Bud, that was pretty good. He even had some humor in it. (laughs) I I considered that the ultimate in compliment for my father.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. I I feel so proud of you, bud. It's like you were the underdog, and... That's that's a huge testament to your to your character. And one of the things I was thinking too, Brene Brown has made this Teddy Roosevelt quote famous now about the man that gets in the arena. But it's true; you, you can't even consider what other people say unless they're willing to get into the arena and fight. Yeah, and I think it's really worth reiterating what you said about the fact that you didn't tell anybody because there are plenty of naysayers out there who will tear you down. And that's unfortunately the world we live in. So it's really important to surround yourself with people that support who you are and what you mm-hmm. want to do and, and to listen to that little voice inside of yourself. And clearly you did that. And again, it's a just a testament to what a great connection that you and Gloria have and what great role, role models you've been for all of us in that way. and, you mentioned earlier that you had been an average student. So how did you find the courage to overcome that part of going to medical school and attempt what you had to attempt academically?
1: Well, I knew that, and I was going to be in the classroom with a bunch of Phi Beta Kappas and very bright students. And so I, I knew that I would have to study more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived in the library. And I got my several books before I actually started classes so I could kind of get a head start. But I had a real, uh, oh, shocking discovery early in my my medical school. Uh, They had a special session on Saturday, Saturday mornings. And the the professor of uh, anatomy, who was an older gentleman, uh, Dr. Overholzer was his name. And of course, he could quote the books. And he was known for putting students on the spot. And he had this special session, which was optional, but most most of the students went. And it was called a rodeo. And he would ask different questions of the students that would come to this. Well, he asked a question about a particular muscle. Uh, Can you describe the trapezius muscle? And... uh, and I was smart enough not to raise my hand, uh, <laughs> even though I thought, well, I, I know in general what, what it is. One of the students raised his hand, and he proceeded to rattle off practically verbatim what it said in the book. Uh. I mean, <laughs> and I slunk down in my chair, and I, several other students did too. But thought, oh, my <laughs> gosh. Is this the level of learning that i was supposed to achieve? Wow. It it was a revelation. Well, uh, the the corollary to that story is that 40 years later, I went back for my 40th reunion. And it's the only time I've been back to medical school since I graduated. Uh, But I thought I'd better make one appearance. And I told the the alumni secretary to send out a note that uh, I was going to be there. And if they wanted to see me, they better they better come to that one. And we had a good turnout. But I told that story. And uh, the, the student that had done that said, well, you know, he said, I have a, an apology to make. And what's that? Well, I knew what was going to happen. And I talked to the upperclassmen. And I knew what they were going to ask. And I never wanted to be questioned again by Dr. Overholster. So I memorized that one muscle. Uh, so that I was ready. And I said, You louse, you <laughs> waited 40 years to tell me that. But it was it was the most challenging four years academically I've I've ever gone through. And I got very average grades, but but you know you know Mo what they call a Person that graduates from medical school with (laughs) average grades?
0: Um, False positive?
1: Doctor. (laughs) (laughs) No one ever asked me my grades. Oh, Uh, my
0: gosh. Well, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the humility and the candor, Uncle Bud, but, you know, now that you say that, I mean, I actually know a doctor who was at the top of his med school class who became a pediatrician because his father told him, kids don't talk back, if you can believe that. So Uh, the reason I say that is because sometimes the smartest kid in the class lacks in other areas like common sense and compassion, which, you know, not that you're asking for a second opinion, but I I think common sense and compassion are sometimes equally as critical to the healing process as any textbook knowledge. Would you agree?
1: Oh, I would agree. They, they used to they used to say that A students go into research, and, and B students work for C students.
0: Yeah. So it, it's all about balance. It's all about balance. Yeah. So, and I remember you saying once too that you had described this time, or, or Gloria had described this time as being fun. Which mm-hmm. you know, at a later date, I'll have to talk to Gloria about what her definition of <laughs> how fun is, but. Did you have any fun at medical school?
1: Oh yeah, when Gloria says it was fun, I think Gloria likes challenges. Yeah, I mean to her it was a journey. To her it was exciting that we were doing something out of the ordinary, and she, uh, as I say, came up with all kinds of ideas. She she decided, well, I'll go to beauty school. I'll get my beauty license, and I can have a an in home. A beauty shop, so I could be with the kids and still generate some income. Wow. And she did that. She had to get a thousand hours of of schooling in to get that. She decided, uh, she said, let's buy a house. And no one would rent to a family of eight, of course, but let's buy a house and then we'll rent some rooms out to students to pay for their mortgage. And we did that. So she had all kinds of innovative ideas. So I think when she says it was fun, she means uh, she enjoyed the excitement of the challenge and the journey. And she was fully confident that I would, I would make it. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't always that confident. But uh, to get that positive feedback when you come home after a test is, is, is certainly encouraging. But in terms of fun, did we have any fun? Yeah, we, we, we set up a schedule, Mo. I came home from school every night for supper and to help put the kids in bed. And then I would go back to the library to study. And every Sunday uh, was kind of our our family day. And there was a wonderful lake in Columbia, Missouri called Stevens Lake. It's actually named after the Stevens College. And we spent many, many days, many, many Sundays there. Uh, just picnicking and the kids swimming and, and so forth and just enjoying herself. So yeah, we we kind of arranged for, for that. We set up a schedule that uh, didn't eliminate enjoying life when I wasn't studying.
0: Boy, I can appreciate that as a parent now, you know, what parents go through as far as trying to make ends meet and... Pay mortgages and feed the kids and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. How how did you end up paying for medical school? I mean, did you live off of what Aunt Gloria was making from? Oh
1: no, no, no. In fact, in fact, the uh, the, the home beauty shop is uh, another story, uh, because they had zoning requirements in Columbia, Missouri, that eliminated the possibility of having a home beauty shop in a residential neighborhood. We spent a year and a half fighting city hall on that and finally one and the dean of uh, the dean of admissions who had befriended us not only had found us some scholarship money any way he could help anywhere there was money he would direct it our way but he also he hired a lawyer to represent us in our challenge to the city ordinance and <laughs> strangely enough that lawyer happened to be a Young man who Gloria had dated when she was Stevens <laughs> college, uh, <Aww. laughs> Ray Lewis was his name. So she didn't officially open open the we won the we finally won the suit uh, after losing three previous votes. We finally won the final vote uh, and and got a legal home beauty shop.
0: So you were going through all of that too while you're in medical.
1: Meadows- oh yeah, but she had customers, most of them. Oh, medical student wives or faculty people that would come in, but uh, she wouldn't charge them. They would give her a donation, and that was the way she got around the. Uh, well, she's not really running a business, but uh, so there was some some income there. But the biggest advantage of that was that she had contact with adults, so that that helped. And then the, the scholarships that he got helped. And I worked during the summer. The first two summers, uh, I worked with a classmate, and we painted houses. So we generated some income that way.
0: Did you end up with a lot of debt after medical school?
1: Well, I ended, we ended up actually with about with $20,000 in debt, which is probably equivalent today, Mo, to 10 times that much. Probably it would be equivalent to a $200,000 debt today. But it was considering that we had spent four years where I couldn't work regularly except during the summers. And we had eight kids. And, of course, by the time I graduated, we had nine. That To get through medical school with only $20,000 in debt, I thought was, a, was quite an achievement.
0: And how did you get around? Did you have, both have cars or were you close enough to walk? No,
1: we, we did not have a car during the time I was in medical school. Uh, I had a bike. Medical school was about two miles from where our house was. And so I would pedal the bike to medical school and uh, then come home at night, pedal back uh, to the library. Uh, It's good exercise. And uh, we had a grocery store that was only a couple of short blocks away. And we would go to the grocery store and load up a a grocery cart and uh, wheel that home, unload it, have one of the kids take the cart back to the store. And we could walk to the, uh, we could walk out to the beach. It was, I don't know mile or so. Uh, But uh, no, we functioned without a car, not only during medical school, but uh, even when I opened my practice in Hillsdale, we only had one car and I had to, Gloria had to use that. So I was still riding my bike. I actually rode my bike until a few years ago when I finally decided it was time to give it up.
0: When you were 90.
1: <laughs> no, I wasn't quite ninety. I think I was eighty-eight or something or whatever.
0: <laughs> you're probably you're probably on a unicycle now, right?
1: No, no. no.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great! Amazing. You know, you just figure it out. You just figure it out.
1: Yeah, you do. And and if you, you know, that's people have done that throughout history. Yeah. You know, if there's a need, you find a way to fill it.
0: That's right. And if you want it bad enough, you'll figure it out. Yeah. 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 Well. I would imagine um, the toughest part maybe about being a doctor is having to have conversations about death, perhaps, with a family member. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah. And, and you know, Mo, doctors are not very good at end-of-life care. Uh, I say that because, and this is not unique, we just read a wonderful book called uh, Being Mortal by Dr. Gowandi. And he points that out, that doctors are not good at end-of-life care because we consider that a failure. We're we're there to cure. We're there to heal. And when someone dies, we fail. At least in our minds, we fail. Now, that's not true. Everybody's going to die. But in terms of dealing with uh, dying patients, I would usually try to communicate With the patient, if if possible, but also with the family. Okay, Uncle Joe has got a terminal illness. He's not going to survive this, and uh, he's developed pneumonia. Do you want me to treat the pneumonia? And sometimes they would say, "Oh yes, we want everything done possible." It wouldn't change the ultimate outcome. It would just extend his life, maybe if a short time, Mm. a longer. But I usually would try to counsel with the family and explain to them the situation and let them make the decision. We didn't have, hospice was not, I don't think, I'm not sure it was around when, well, yes, it was. It it, it was around, but uh, I think it's much more prominent now. And they are wonderful. Yeah. They deal with end of life care beautifully.
0: That's great insight. And I think we touched on this earlier, but It does take an incredible amount of courage to have tough conversations and to be brave and afraid, which is hard to do at the same time. We have to reduce our egos and feel super vulnerable to have healthy conversations. But you were having conversations about life and death to varying degrees, literally. Was there anything you did actively to build your courage as a skill set, emotionally and spiritually?
1: Well, I said a lot of prayers, but... The most difficult deaths were the deaths of babies, either at birth or stillborns. Or I had one patient that I can remember vividly that had a crib death. And I'm not sure how they got through that, the parents. But uh, I I had no formula uh, for helping people deal with that. It's, it's tragic. Yeah. But, uh, and even Doc, Dr. Gawandi in this book that he wrote doesn't come up with any special formula. He said he acknowledged he's terrible with end of life care, even with his father. But it's a marvelous book because it points out the fact that dying patients, uh, we need to ask the patient what they want instead of telling them what they need, to ask them what they want. Dr. Gawande talks about this one older gentleman he had, and uh, when asked that question, he said, I want to be able to eat ice cream and watch baseball. And he wasn't even a baseball fan. And so that's what he got through the end of his life. He got to eat ice cream, watch baseball, but that's what he wanted. So I think that uh, oftentimes we try to tell patients rather than asking patients.
0: Yeah, and I think, I think that's probably true whether you're a patient or a doctor. These are hard conversations to have with anyone. Um, have you thought about that?
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, Mo, it's interesting that we're talking about this because just last week uh, we called Hospice in for Gloria. I'm sure you weren't aware of that, but uh, she has congestive heart failure and she has great difficulty breathing. And uh, and she's ready to go. I have, I was not ready at the same time she was, but I finally reached the point where I'm accepting it. I'm not sure I'm <laughs> agreeing with it, but I'm accepting it. And hospice came in last week, as a matter of fact, mm. and they're wonderful. Now, this doesn't mean that she's going to die tomorrow. It doesn't mean that she's going to die in six months. It just means that she's not going to recover from her congestive heart failure and it's going to get worse. And she's gone downhill pretty much, uh, pretty rapidly in the last six months, I would say. So she's not able to do anything. And the biggest frustration for her is not being able to do anything. So I'm dealing with death on a, on a more personal level now. Sure. Uh,
0: and it's difficult for the caretakers.
1: Oh, it, it's tough. It's, yeah. it's tough. Uh, but Plan to keep her at home. This is what most people, where most people want to die, they want to die at home. But she's her spirits are good, and she's 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 doing okay.
0: I've never been in the position, not even when my mother passed, to ask anybody about this. So if I if I may, I'd like to ask some of the tougher questions that I'm curious about. Okay. When you're so close to this this part of life, which is the transition yeah. of death. What does that feel like? Do you feel scared? Do you feel scared for Gloria?
1: No, I I wouldn't say I feel scared. I feel, well, it's a different relationship now than it was when we were younger. And I'm now more uh, her caretaker. And that's a different role. So I think that's, maybe that's God's way of transitioning us into the acceptance of the end of life i'm not sure i'm even saying this properly but you're you're not losing the person that you knew 10 years ago or 20 years ago or when you first got married you're losing a and this is maybe crude but a different person who is transitioning into death Mm. Uh, and it's just I really can't describe it well, but it's it's a different different feeling, and fear. Neither Gloria or I are fearful of death. I'm concerned about how I'm going to die, but not that I'm going to die. Right. We have been so blessed, Paul, in our life. Uh, I asked Gloria not too long ago. I said, "Okay, well, what would you change if you had to do it over again? If you had to do your life." again what would you do different and she thought for a moment and she said nothing nothing hmm. and I think I think we both feel that way that we've we've had full lives we've been able to pursue some dreams we've been able to have all these children we have lots of family around every one of our children mo has been here for a visit of usually several days to a week in the last four months everyone You're the ones from California. And I think, well, I think they're getting the message. uh, That if you want to see your mother, you better go home.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Go see your mother. Yeah. It feels like what you have with GLOW is such a deep friendship. It's the humanity of it. And it sounds like a very peaceful place and that there's a lot of gratitude there, especially to be able to ask that question. I think as a parent at this point, it's hard to alleviate those feelings of guilt. I think that that's normal. But I Absolutely. do try to go through a process of releasing that guilt and transforming those feelings into something positive mm-hmm. because I'm not in the business of outcomes, certainly.
1: You are a marvelous inspiration, Mo. Oh. You really are. You really are. Uh, I just have so much admiration for you.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. I Well, I I gather my inspiration from people like you, honestly, and all of my guests, and I'm so blessed at this point in my life. And to be able to ask these difficult questions is really a privilege for me because I'm not afraid of dying either. I I fear, like you, the way that that might happen. But when I die, it's I'm gone. I, I worry about the people that are left behind because I know that's right. the, that's the most painful part. But to be able to be in a position as you are with Gloria after 68 years, it's just such a gift. Such a gift to oh, be able yeah. to be kind and caring and loving to this person that has been so supportive of you. Yeah,
1: we've been very we've been very blessed.
0: And I wonder sometimes too, like you know, that it seems like the question in general is always, "Do you have any regrets?" But I sort of feel like the deeper question is about not what regrets do you have, but what are the choices that you made in those moments that you yes. where you didn't have regrets, and what you did in your mid thirties by choosing to go to medical school. That's one of those things, like I said in the beginning, a decision that changed the course of your life forever. Oh, yeah. And, and what an example that you set for your children and the ripple effect of that on other lives that you don't even know about, like mine, like my children, you know, we're all affected by that.
1: Well, you know, the, the, only, the only part I miss in medicine and the thing that made, and I retired when I was 65, and I was ready to retire from medicine. But the, the only part I miss of medicine is bringing new life into the world. That always was such a miracle to me, to see a new baby born, a new life begin. And I don't miss the hours that you women decide to have your babies, (laughs) Uh, because uh, I spent a lot of nights at the hospital uh, waiting for a baby to arrive. But the thrill, and of course, I did a lot of OB. That was a big part of my practice. It delivered over two thousand babies, and, and uh, I really enjoyed that part. But I guess that's the—that's the part I miss most about retirement.
0: I'm sure it's probably one of the reasons you and Glow have both been so active and involved in starting. You started a crisis pregnancy center, I think, in Hillsdale, didn't mm-hmm. you, to help provide to give help for women with unplanned pregnancies.
1: Yeah, I think all my life I've been very pro-life and I've been very active in that uh, here in Hillsdale. So is Gloria. And she, being her positive, optimistic self, is responsible for the Crisis Pregnancy Center, which is uh, an organization to help women with unplanned pregnancies, having their own building. Because she she was on the board at the time and she convinced them. I said, we need to buy this building. There was a doctor that was selling a building. And the rest of the board said, Gloria, we don't have any money. She said, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll raise the money. <laughs> but that that's Gloria. She did the same thing for the uh, theater. The theater had no building of their own, and there was a, an old movie theater that became available. She was on the board at that time for the theater, and she she told them, uh, let's make a bid on that, that building. The city owned it, and they wanted to get rid of it. And she got the same response. We don't have any money, Gloria. Don't worry, we'll raise the money. <laughs> <laughs> and so both those organizations are blessed with buildings now of their own, and in large measure because of her optimism, vision, and vision.
0: You know, she she kind of reminds me of Andy in that way too. I. I'm probably more like you, which is maybe (laughs) why I I, I always say, I mean, Andy's just the eternal optimist. He just hopes for the best. Oh, that's wonderful. There's no other option. He just hopes for the best. I, on the other hand, I'm a little more practical and realistic. And (laughs) while I hope for the best, I expect the worst.
1: Yeah, you need both. You need both. You need visionaries, but you need trench workers too. Yeah. You need the people that uh, carry out the vision.
0: I think a little bit of his optimism is rubbing off on me because I'm learning how to just let go a little bit more and be more, more flexible, more spontaneous, and
1: you should
0: and follow my dreams.
1: Yeah,
0: and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because I think it's really important for at any age, to not give up on your dreams. And I did put some things on hold for a while. And I think a lot of women, whether you work in the home or out of the home, whatever makes you most happy is where you should be. That's what your kids are going to remember. A brooding house feels a lot different than a happy house.
1: Oh, yeah, I would agree. Well, the reason we had so many children, Mo, is because we were going to be perfect parents (laughs) and have perfect children guess what? The good Lord looked down and said, oh, this couple needs humility. So they sent our children to humble us, and they humbled us. Well,
0: God has a good, he has a good sense of humor.
1: He has a great sense of humor. We ended up not being perfect parents, and I'm sure God was smiling, but we learned a lot.
0: One of the questions I wanted to ask you too, was it hard at times not to bring work home with you?
1: Well, I really don't remember having that as a problem. The problem was when I got home, Gloria would have this litany of uh, c- concerns about the kids or problems or things they had done. Uh, and uh, men tend to be fixers. right? And so I felt I had to fix all these things. That wasn't what she was intending. She just wanted me to know about what she'd gone through. She
0: wanted you to feel her pain.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, she didn't want me to fix them, but I would come home and I would and I finally complained about that. I said, geez, I deal with problems all day with my patients. And I come home and you unload all these problems on me. And so at that point, she went away for six weeks. Now, she wasn't going away from me necessarily, but uh, uh, because she couldn't deal with the teenage kids. And she went, went away and lived with her mother for six weeks and left me with the five teenagers, the five older kids. And she took the five youngers with her. And she read lots of books on child rearing and discipline and so forth. And she realized that she could not be a friend to her children. She was their mother, not their friend. That's right. And I think that's a trap that a lot of people fall into. They want to be friends with their teenagers. And the teenagers don't want to be friends with their parents. Nope. (laughs) And so uh, that that helped her a great deal, but it was a, a real struggle.
0: How did you and Glow get through that?
1: Well, I did not feel that she was leaving me; as she was leaving the teenage kids because she couldn't deal with them. And while I was while she was gone, of course, they treated me like a king. Because they didn't have uh, their 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 mother around. Yeah.
0: So how how does that happen? You know, blood, <laughs> yeah. tears. I'm telling you, I've gone through my version of this, and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Andy comes home, and they're just yeah. like, oh, they snuggle. They're you know, yeah, they're yeah. Like, they yeah. oh yeah, inside jokes.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gloria said when when she talks to him, uh, when she tells them to jump, they say, why? When I tell them to jump, they say, "How high?" Yeah, it's it's (laughs) It's not fair. I keep hearing there's going to
0: be a payoff for me. So,
1: oh, there's always, always. You you will be loved as their mother more than uh, their father is. Mothers have a special special bond with children that fathers fathers never achieve. That's
0: true. How was that? What was that like when she came back?
1: It was fine. It was fine. She figured out that she no longer could be her kids' friends. And so she made. She actually sat down with the kids and made rules with them. She said, okay, they all had chores to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you don't do your chores, what do you think your penalty should be? And so she had them establish the penalty. So they couldn't complain about it when the penalty was inflicted. And that really helped. It's
0: also nice, too, that you supported that because you, if, you, oh, if yeah. you have two oh. parents at home, you both have to support the rules. And I just say to Andy all the time when they were little, we're teaching this now because it's hard to teach them something when they're two, but it's a heck of a lot easier at two than it is at 12. And it is Yes, at that's, that's right. So teach them how to be respectful now and to do the work and that consequences matter and it'll be easier later on. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. But it worked for us. And uh, as I say, it wasn't that we were estranged. It was (laughs) the kids, but it was a difficult time, but we got through it.
0: Well, and one of the reasons I had started to ask you that question about whether or not you brought work home with you is because I think a lot of people get to a point where they wish they hadn't worked so hard or they wish they had 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 the courage to make themselves more more vulnerable Mm -hmm. and invest in the relationships that matter to them the most, but they're afraid and they don't know how to do it. So, I know this may mean making oneself more vulnerable intentionally, but for those of us who are trying to find the courage to be more vulnerable with the people we love the most, do you have any advice as to how we can do that?
1: Well, Mo, we did we did try to make time for some recreation away from home. We always took a short vacations during the summer. A lot of it was canoeing, a lot of it with, <laughs> with uh, Andy's family, and but they were growing up because we had a lot of matched, matched kids, matched ages. And so we would go canoeing or, or, or do something fun. And it was frequently with the David Beers. We got together with them a lot. So we, we did make time. And I took a canoe trip or a rafting trip with each one of our kids, except uh, I think a couple of the older ones, but each one of our kids. By themselves, I would go off with one one of the children and we'd go for a weekend and we'd either canoe or we'd uh, do rafting and it was great one on one time because I, I I was in charge of the food, and so they they, they had to do what I told them, and we had a great conversation, and they had to put up with me for for the weekend. and it was, But it was a fun time. It was always challenging. So we tried hard to make time, even when I was in medical school, to make time for family.
0: It seems to be one of the themes emerging from talking to people on the podcast is just having quality time, time alone mm-hmm. to restore yourself, to pray, to listen to your mm-hmm. thoughts, to be with nature, and to be with the people that matter to, to make sure that that's quality time. That's so important.
1: Well, you know, one of the tragedies, I think, of today's society is the lack of family time. Unfortunately, I think it's characteristic of our current society with all the activities that uh, people are involved in. I just read an article, Mo, that there, there no longer is a middle child because no one's having more than two children.
0: Well, and I do remember saying to Andy, I was one and done. And then Mark was a surprise. And I was on birth control. And it was a surprise. Mark clearly needed to be here. Yes. But uh, yeah, there's no zone defense for me. It's, it's, you know, mano a mano. You know, but I knew my own limitations, frankly. So, um, yes, yes. That was a very deliberate decision. And how lucky am I to be able to have that choice as a woman? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. At the end of the show, I do a a round of rapid fire questions. Are you up for that? Sure. Here we go. Favorite sound?
1: A newborn's cry.
0: Favorite smell?
1: I think meat cooking on a grill.
0: Favorite food?
1: Well, it used to be a tender filet, but now it's my morning cereal with fruit.
0: What scares you and makes you feel vulnerable today?
1: Well, today, my poor balance. I'm Mm -hmm. afraid of falling, and so I use a cane regularly.
0: Do you think that crying is a sign of weakness?
1: Oh, no. I hope not, because (laughs) I do it.
0: (laughs) How about saying I'm sorry?
1: You know, Mo, I think that's the most powerful way to end an argument, Uh, along with, I forgive you.
0: And when it comes to healing, what do you think impedes people's progress the most?
1: I think feeling guilty.
0: If you could master one skill right now, what would it be?
1: I think it would be writing a successful play or novel.
0: What's next? What's the impossible task or dream ahead of you that's calling you to be courageous?
1: I think facing the death of my wife.
0: Yeah, that's that's tough. So... We'll say some extra prayers for for both of you. What's the takeaway today? Do you have any advice for others who are trying to find the courage to make their dreams come true?
1: Well, I would mention four things. First, focus on your dream. Avoid negative input. Enlist an encouraging partner. And persist.
0: Mm, Persistence. Yep. Never give up. And last question. What do you want to be remembered for?
1: You know, that's a question I ask other people, Mo, and it's not an easy question. I would like to be remembered for having made a difference, however you want to define that.
0: Well, you have done that. But you've made a difference in every life that you touch. And and there are a lot of lives that you've touched. And again, just the ripple effects over your 93 years and going strong still. So you've got a lot of work to do yet. I hope so. We're all so very lucky to have you in our lives and, and Gloria, and you're an incredible role model of courage and so much more. So thank you again for being here today and for sharing your wisdom with all of us.
1: Oh, thank you, Mo. Appreciate the opportunity
0: you're welcome for anyone interested in reading Bud and Gloria's memoir called Love, Laughter, and Dreams we prayed for 12 children you can go to amazon.com and if you'd like to start a dialogue please don't hesitate to pop over to the comments section after the show at biteofcourage.com until next time be bold, be brave, be daring and take a bite of courage see you next week (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Bite of Courage. If you'd like to learn more about my guests or you'd like to leave a comment, please go to biteofcourage.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to check out my blog, humormewithmo.com, where I write about finding humor in life's absurdities. Until next time, be bold, be brave, be daring, and take a bite of courage. This is a Trio production, all rights reserved.